All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Professional Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Gunter, and we've got another great show for you today. I had a blast recording this one. Today, we're joined by Joel Smith. He's a strength and speed coach in the Pac-12 Conference at Cal Berkeley. Uh, He's a former track athlete himself, and uh, now he spends his days working with members of the track and field team in addition to the swimming team. He has over 11 years of experience coaching. He's done everything from sprints, jumps, hurdles, pole vault. Uh, I mean, you name it on the collegiate level. Um, He's coached multiple All-Americans, national champions, and uh, in 2016, supported five athletes who went on to earn Olympic berths in the 2016 Games, where they actually earned nine medals, and that includes one world record performance. Incredible. So uh, if that isn't enough to get your attention... Well, we're just getting started. Joel also runs his own personal business, Just Fly Sports. This is actually how I found out about him. He hosts a really successful podcast that in just four short years has become a leader in the sports performance space. He's written a number of books. I actually have gotten a few of them. He also does workout programs. And like so many of the great guests that we've had, he gives a lot of information away for free. So stay tuned to listen how you can follow along uh, what Joel's doing at Just Fly Sports. Today's podcast, it was an awesome, awesome conversation. I think if you're interested in the science of sport, this is definitely one that you're going to want to tune into. Joel's one of those folks who I think actually may have forgotten more than I've ever learned on this topic. And I mean that wholeheartedly. So I suppose that's what happens when you have your own podcast where you've spoken to nearly 200 experts over the last four years. But we talk about his rise through the coaching cast system, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, For someone who does so much, I'm always fascinated to kind of hear as to like how they got to where they are. We talk about why it's important to understand that often if you're thinking about yourself as an athlete or if you have young kids, this is really important. It's more beneficial to tap into your own natural movement patterns versus trying to cram yourself into some stereotypical mold. So that requires a lot of individual coaching. He goes into that in detail, which is great. We talk about some things that are a bit more technical, like the role of fascia. So why weightlifting is not necessarily um, the best thing you can be doing to translate your, your efforts into speed and explosiveness. We also talk about to what extent you're genetically predisposed to be fast and explosive, right? What are the role of muscle fibers? So there's a lot of really great information. I could have talked to Joel for hours, but uh, again, really, really fortunate to have him on the show. And I I think people are going to take a lot out of it. Uh, Again, to all those who've reached out, thank you for your feedback on the show. I'm having an absolute blast recording this podcast. If you have any thoughts uh, that you want to share with me or you want to reach out to me, we're about to launch KenGunter.com. So I think by the time this is out, you can reach us there. Likewise, if you want to follow us on Instagram, uh, I I try and respond as quickly as I can on that platform as well. You can find us at at the underscore professional athlete. Uh, But again, thank you for the overwhelming support. Really appreciate it. And we're going to try and keep bringing you great content. So without further ado... Let's welcome Joel to the show. I gotta get up. I got too much to do. Yeah, I gotta get going. I gotta talk to you. It's time to start the show. (laughs) Hey, Joel, welcome to the show. Ken, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I know you've uh, got a lot on your plate, so appreciate you making the time to join us. 
Yeah. Well, hey, it's always, like I said, before we started recording, it's always good to be on the other side of the line. I always like, uh, I always like having conversations. Uh, I know. Well, yeah, it's, and we were just talking about, it. I mean, now you've done over 185, what was it? Almost 187 episodes yeah, 187 goes the, up uh, tomorrow. So hopefully <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. As, as long as all goes well with the, uh, post-production. Um, that's awesome. So, I mean, that's even a great place to start. That is one of the initial places where I was first introduced, uh, to the content that you and your team are putting out there on the, uh, the just fly sports performance podcast. Um, for those interested, you can find Joel there. And, uh, you know, what I was kind of initially drawn to was, um, one, you know, your, your individual level of expertise, which we can, we can dive into here. Um, but two, also just kind of like the diversity of guests that you have on your show. Um, and just kind of the exposure that, that you offer people to like a diverse, a, a diverse, you know, kind of array of sports performance topics that uh, they might not have otherwise considered. Yeah, it's, I think the the biggest thing, and, I, and I've been more aware of this myself, and just talk with, I talk with interns about this a lot, mm. it's, it's continually expanding layers of awareness, things to, just new things to think about. And that's always, I, I treat the the show, it, it's just my never ending um, well, maybe it'll end someday, but but just a uh, journey to expand my awareness and new things that either a lot of it just being like looking at a great athlete and just seeing all the reasons that they're great. You know, why all right. the reasons that you might not have known it before. So, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and actually, maybe for the listeners at home, that would be uh, a great place to start because, um, you know, as as a strength and speed coach, right, you, your, your track record is... Uh, pretty impressive um, in addition to all the things that you're doing with your own company. So maybe if you wouldn't mind just uh, giving people kind of a quick overview of, you know, how you got to be uh, where you are in, in your career at this point. Sure thing. Yeah. So my um, currently I, I wear a couple hats. One is as a strength coach at UC Berkeley, where I work primarily with aquatics and men's tennis. Uh, I also run Just Fly Sports on the side. I am a club track and field coach at Diablo Valley Track and Field Club. And so here at Cal, well, it's been good because before the this time period, and this is my eighth year, I was uh, in track and field as a primary for six six years. And what I've kind of found was, and I did strength and conditioning and those types of things as well too. But what's been really great is this this thing where I, I was starting to tap out on how on some level, how good I think I was going to be just inside of the track and field box. I needed to get mm -hmm. into the strength and conditioning box and the swimming box to learn more about track and field, which I mean, just jumping higher, running faster to me, that's all track and field, right? It, it's those basic skills. And so, uh, it, that's, uh, I mean, that's, I guess, so to take it back to my, a very quick nutshell of, of the past then, um, was a college track and field athlete, high jump and javelin, triple jump, sprints, hurdles, few other things. Um, I coached at Wisconsin lacrosse for a couple of years and got my master's degree there and then coached at a place called Wilmington College for four years where I coached track. I did some strength and conditioning, work with men's basketball a lot and then a lot of other teams and did an internship program and I also taught courses. And it was about three years through there that I started Just Fly Sports and probably five years after that started the podcast um maybe four or five not exactly sure um so yeah in a nutshell that is that is how i landed at this given place here in yeah. time and it's been a good journey well so let me ask you this so 
you know, having been a, uh, you know, a D1 college athlete myself, knowing the time that you probably have to dedicate to your own job, right? Just helping improve the performance of the athletes that you're working with. You know, what kind of gap did you see, um, whether it be in the industry or just in kind of like the more broad um, educational space around strength and speed conditioning that, you know, you, you felt that there was a need to start uh, the Just Fly, uh, you know, side business? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think the reason that it was originally born, um, I think my, my life has been this transition of starting with probably more egocentric and selfish reasons and trying to turn them over time into <laughs> reasons that benefit humanity and serve humanity. Yeah. I, I suppose maybe on some level, that's how we all grow and learn. But I think for me, that's a, that's a particular journey. And so I will say when I started it, it was just because I, I, I knew I'd, and now I've been writing even, I started when I was 27 and I've been writing though, since I was 23 in terms of just putting my information on the internet and maybe younger. I mean, I remember mm -hmm. I did, was doing blogs that I think called track shark when I was 21, 22. And okay. so I've always liked writing and putting my thought process in space. And so even before I started just fly, I, I had probably, I don't know, like several, maybe several dozen to several hundred followers and on my blog or something like that. And then, uh, turned it into that. But I did it because it was just a thing where you're, you're a division three track coach and you're making a very low amount of money and you're, <laughs> and you're late and you're in your late twenties. And the next step oh, yeah. up is not a lot better. It's, you're going to make maybe a couple thousand more than you are now to train some slightly better athletes and still do, do all these recruiting hours and all this stuff. And, and yep. I was just like, I was just looking at basically where my future was headed. And I'm like, man, like I, I've always, I said this back in college that I wanted to be like a track coach and then have a website education on the side. Like mm. I said that all the way back when I was 21, 22. Yeah. So I'm like, and I just been thinking about it for a long time. And it was finally time to just put my money where my mouth is, so to speak. Um, I was very fortunate to have picked up my business partner who was a javelin thrower for me, who does all the back end on just fly at that point, who was just amazing. And oh, so it was a lot of things that needed to happen happened. And so I started it and it's just, it's kind of just evolved from there. I think I had expected the end of the first year to have written a vertical jump book that made a million dollars. I, I, um, but I think I've found that it's actually turned into something significantly better over about yeah. the, the next, uh, almost 10 years now. So yeah, it's been a fun ride. That's awesome. Well, and the thing that, uh, you know, I've always been interested in, in like what the internet provides and, you know, obviously writing books and your podcast is doing this today as well is, um, you know, the knowledge that it seems like you've acquired, right? Certainly you're getting to share that with the athletes that you work with day to day, but you know, through the platforms that you're leveraging, right? You're getting to spread that content, um, to a much larger audience, right? So, so even more people can benefit from it. Uh, someone like myself, right, who's now in their early 30s, probably not uh, who you expected to be reaching with some of your your content. But for me, it's it's been tremendously interesting and a huge help. So uh, whether or not it was started for selfish reasons, I think to your point, right, you're you're offering some greater good to humanity, which uh, hopefully will come back to you in the way of karma. <laughs> yeah, hope, yeah, hopefully we'll wait for the next life. It should be pretty solid. I think I'm, I'm amassing it, but yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's been a fun ride. Yeah. And I, and I, I think about that. It's like, once you start to have that audience, I really do think about it's, I mean, it all does, I think it all starts with, with us and our own journey, but then to be mm -hmm. able to project our growth out and get it out there, it's, it's been fun. So yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it and I'm glad that hey, I'm glad I found you.
Oh, yeah, yeah, it did. And thank you very much. So you said something um, with regards to your transition from being primarily a track coach to moving into the world of like strength and conditioning. So did that transition happen because you felt that that was necessary to continue your growth as a coach? Um, or was, you know, did you identify that by becoming more fluent in the world of strength and condition, you were going to be able to help your athletes to your point, jump higher, run faster? I guess, I guess, why was that move necessary for you at that time? Um, well, I, I, at the time I didn't know the greater purpose of it. Mm. Um, but at the time, I, so it was my fourth year at Wilmington college. And actually this isn't a story I necessarily talk about a lot. Um, but I mean, cause people are just like, oh, wow, you made a jump from D3 to D1. Like that rarely happens in coaching. Yeah. It really happens. It's very tiered. It's like, it's, um, I'm trying to think of the system in, in, in India, the cat, it's like the caste system. kind right. of. Right. And, and I don't know why, cause there's a lot of really good coaches in D3 and there's a lot of coaches in D1 that probably, you know, don't have, there's obviously a lot of great coaches in D1. I work with some incredible ones, but there's all, you know, it's just, for some reason, it's like you're in this division and, and it, there, there's tags and labels almost put on people because of these things. And so I think that the how it ended up happening was um, I, I was looking for jobs anyways. And I, I didn't, Cal found me. Um, hmm. I, I, at the time, I was actually applying for a job at a Division two school in Missouri uh, for a track coach, basically an upgrade on my own job. Like it would have been a su substantial upgrade on, in the track and field space. And at the same time, a, a track coach from Cal reached out to me about being the strength coach at Cal. And I, this is ironic because when I first got into strength and conditioning, interning and strength and conditioning, the first two internship experiences I had, um, one was at Wright State uh, University and the other one was at Wisconsin Lacrosse. Those completely turned me off to the world of strength. I mean, I did. I was like, I do not want to do this. Interesting. This is, this is boring. I am not. And and. Here's the, here's the thing is I, I have a very, I've found this out over time. I didn't have the awareness back then, but I have a very high need for intellectual stimulation mm. and the way that strength and conditioning was presented to me in those internships was anything but that it was basically, here's a workout card, yell at the athletes, do it this way because I said, so there was very, there was no critical analysis whatsoever. And, right. and, and I, it was like, this is, and but I had loved the stuff. I mean, I, I grew up reading, you know, reading everything I could get my hands on in, in all the literature and, you know, reading super training and buying all the programs and scouring the internet and, and really like getting into my own training process. I mean, to me, that was exciting and interesting, but then to come back and, and say, okay, well, this is how you train athletes. And it's just something just felt really did not write about that and not, I just didn't, I didn't really didn't enjoy it. Yeah. And then I'll combine that with these horror stories of long hours and no pay from or little pay from strength coaches I had met. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll coach track because that seems better. And you have to wake up as early. And I, you know, I like it seems <laughs> like there I could put more like intellectual process into the technical, the technicalities that went behind the events and, and some of the strength power means and cultivating that. And so, so anyways, and, and I will say this too, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but I've been having some no, good conversations, um, with a buddy of mine, Paul Cater, who runs a gym in, in Salinas, California. And he's been a mentor to me. He's, he's about five years older than me, six years older than me. I met him in, um, in Barcelona, Spain about 15 years ago, 10 years. Yeah. 15 years ago. And him and I have the commonalities of 
just being very creative in our own thought processes before we were even exposed to a structured strength and conditioning model. Hmm. And I think that's a microcosm for life. Like uh, Rudolf Steiner, the educator, uh, had said, uh, who does the Waldorf Method School, that if a child um, is it, you need to train, you, you work your right brain until age eight and then worry about the left, the left brain, the analytics. Work the emotional, hmm. the connection, the creative and then, fi- then later, when you're ready, worry about all the analytical stuff. And if you don't do that, you lack. You're gonna not have the creativity that you could have. And so, I think it was really good for me that I avoided strength and conditioning because I think it kept me creative in all the methods that I was doing. And it actually wasn't until it's funny because I in the classes I taught at Wilmington College on strength and conditioning, I'm like, okay, I guess I need to read all the books now to make a curriculum. Right. And when I was doing that, I'm doing a lot of the things that these organizations tell you to do, like squat with your knees out and through your heels, which reduce my stride length by a few inches and my high jump approach sh- like shrunk in length. And I know it's because of that because everything else in training was incredible. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's just these things that I think that uh, there's just so much we take for granted. Um, and I think that the human body is incredible and we're still figuring out and we don't, we still, there's still a lot it does that we don't know. Um, so long story short, I didn't want to do S and C. I liked doing it at Wilmington because I, there was basically no rules. I got to do the programs however I wanted to, which was not that much different than anyone else. I, I think necessarily, but I, I just feel like, um, I just feel like I had more freedom of creativity, you know? And, and so therefore it was enjoyable and, Anyways, uh, I decided to go to Cal to be a strength coach. Originally, actually, I'd only thought about going there for two years. It was like, hey, I, was, I, I moved up in the cast system. I'm D1 now. I'm right. good. I, I can maybe get a track coaching job that's higher now. And it's in California. And it's like combines a couple of things I really like doing, which is track and field and then the strength training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't, I, I didn't, it, it, that job found me. And then funny enough, about three years into it, I decided I didn't want to work with the track programs anymore there. And then the, I wanted to get into the aquatics like, and, and the aquatic world there has been really good to me and I've learned so much. Like that's, that's why I'm here is to yeah. learn from that. And so, yeah, that's the story of uh, why I'm, why I'm where I am now. Now it's funny when you mentioned the cast system. So my younger brother uh, was a division two football coach. So uh, he played at Shadron state, shout out to Shadron. And uh, he GA'd there, and then he was an assistant football coach. And it's funny, as he was starting to look for other jobs, it, he, yeah, he was locked into that kind of like D2, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, cast, right? It's kind of like that's where his network was built out. Those are the other schools that were, you know, kind of willing to interview. Um, so I completely understand what you're saying there. You, so tell me a little bit more about the relevance of aquatics, because to me, swimming and track could not feel further apart. So I guess like at what level are there synergies between the two sports and, you know, how does working with, and tell me if I'm making an incorrect assumption, but how does working with the aquatics athletes benefit the work you're doing with your, um, you know, track athletes? No, hundred percent. And so the biggest thing by far that I've gotten out of learning, um, from swim. Well, there's really two things. Uh, the one, one thing that I've learned and the thing is not all swim coaches are like this, like this part, um, this I've gotten more from learning on the the women's side and the women's team and the way that they do things is they, I, the, the way that they coach learning motor learning, how an athlete learns and 
essentially, and this also go, fits in with everything I've learned from Adarian Barr and the world of track and field. Like it's a, it's a lot of it's almost coming from the same mind. And it's the idea of pre-programmed versus natural movement. So a lot of in a lot of sports and any sport, like in baseball, uh, excuse me, they might say, yeah. "Hey, I, your rear foot should turn into the throw or shot put. You should like turn your rear foot to turn your right hip into the throw." But that's not what happens. That's something someone made up. <laughs> if right. you watch high speed video, that's not what ha- it happens as a result. That yeah. happens as a result of the block foot. That foot does not actively turn itself to push the hip and so like that would be example from the throw world from the track world it might be lift your knees when you run let's hit this position that this athlete is hitting at one frame in time why because this athlete is hitting one frame of this and in swimming it's even crazier because you have a three-dimensional liquid that allows a lot even more technical like nuances and expressions Mm. like um like ian thorpe uh, the Thorpedo, I think it was in the 2000s, he was dominating swimming and he had, I think, kind of a higher elbow action. So everyone started copying him, but it's like, you're not that person. And so, and it's, so these, these certain um, techniques will just get positionally impressed on athletes and coaches will give these cues without really having the layers of awareness to really know why they're saying it. Like, why are you telling an athlete to lift their knees? Why are you telling them to dip down in the penultimate step? Why are you telling them to lift their hand high behind them in javelin? I, I don't know. That's just right. what my coach told me. I don't know. Like, you know, and, right. and so, so I've learned to work with an athlete's own system, own sensory system to try to use positional cues less and to really try to work with the athlete's subconscious better. Um, like Franz Bosch says, I think, uh, like the all, all coaching, true coaching, I, I think it was him, like is really the real coaching is really what you communicate with the athlete's subconscious because the forebrain and conscious brain just forgets it all anyways when it's go time. So um, that's that's a really big one. Um, and then it fits with a lot of things that Darian Barr has taught me in the world of track and field, Darian being a mentor who was kind of, um, I, I uh, connected with when I started writing speed strength because I wanted to really circle every possible, you know, base and box. And I'm really glad I found him because if I didn't, if it wasn't for him, that book would be nothing like what it is now. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's been a big one. Those two concepts. So that idea from swimming and what Darian's taught me in track, deconstructing running, I, I, I've just put those together and it, it changes everything for me. Um, and I think that, and I've found that that type of coaching will help athletes to find a later um, anecdotally, but just from those I've talked to, I feel like athletes who are coached that way will reach peak performance a little bit later in life. Whereas athletes who are positionally locked into a technique that isn't their own, so to speak, like a natural, this is my own natural, optimal way my body functions, um, might not reach as high of a, uh, a ceiling. And so that's one. And then another one is the way that swimming approaches motor learning. Um, or sorry, before I keep rambling, is there anything? No, this is great. Anything with that? Well, so I actually, I got your book, Speed Strength, and, uh, you know, not to completely pander to you on the call, but I, it was awesome. And it kind of, um, it did a really good job of explaining, you know, why there's no, you know, prototype of movement that everyone needs to fit into, right? Everyone's li- everyone's limbs are longer, the ratios are different, their muscle fibers are like, there's, there's all these like, you know, probably countless factors that go into the way someone's body like naturally just anatomically wants to move. Um, and so, you know, I was really interested to kind of looking back on my own training career, like, you know, all these 
cues that I was taught, you know, I don't even know if I ever actually integrated them, right? Like, I don't know the, the hours of drilling that we did in track and basketball, mostly track now that I think about the cues for sprinting. I don't know if I ever truly, really adopted any of them. And to your point about like, you know, in, in my, my forebrain, um, I definitely tried, but when push came to shove and I had to compete, it kind of felt like all of that just went out the window. Right. So I guess, you know, not to derail you uh, your next point, but I, I think one thing I would love to get your opinion on is, you know, with that in mind, you know, do you believe that, um, you know, speed and explosiveness can be taught or is it more about taking the way that someone's body already operates and just trying to kind of enhance that within the confines of the way it's, it already wants to move? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good, that's a million dollar question. So I think I have a good answer to that. And I'll okay. see the second thing that I learned in swimming was motor learning. Uh, yeah, please, I, please. maybe I can get in that in the back half of the show. The way that those coaches approach motor learning is it's by necessity because swimming is more unnatural than running and it's, you're in a small space and you have a certain like tank right in front of you. So, um, the skill acquisition element has been really cool. Um, hmm. so, uh, but I'll get to your question here. Uh, I was, uh, yes, uh, the way that speed can be improved is two things. I think the way that we think it can be improved, uh, uh, the Western world loves to quantify everything. Whereas I think the Eastern is a little more like, uh, there's a lot more of the essence of things. Uh, it's perhaps more of an art form over there. But, um, I think the problem here is that we, we just treat everything as if you look at like the masculine feminine or the qualitative quantitative spectrum of things, everything's everything's quantitative or masculine end, meaning produce more force, produce it faster, et cetera, et cetera. And that's good. Like you need to do that if you're going to be faster, the fastest you can be, that is part of it. Uh, and that is going to be, that is limit, probably the thing that is more limited to genetics of the equation. Like it's just the, most, like the inherent force that someone is just able to create. Yes. And, and the Russians had this, um, it was something like, uh, all these classes of sprinters, and I, I, I'm not sure if I put this in speed strength. There's a really good, they have such good research from the seventies and eighties. And it was something like the faster a sprinter got, the higher their class, as you probably move from, I don't know, 11 second guy down to a 10 second guy. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the raw strength might've been the same, but the amount of isometric force they could produce in the 10th of a second in the key joints, that was the big, the big thing that differentiated. So, mm. um, and that, but that, is kind of genetic. Like I'm not saying completely because I think that you, I, I think there's certain mental and emotional factors that repress us from unlocking our highest power potential. I think there's we we always have more than we think we do. Mm. Um, and then I think there's a lot of good neurological training out there, like Jay Schrader's methods and having used like some um, like direct current stimulation, like the ARP wave, those types of machines. I'm like, wow. Okay, the nervous system it can oftentimes go more, but at the end of the day, <laughs> like uh, it was in one of those Inno sport books, and it really gets down into like the neurology in this really in depth way. But something to do like your transmission rate is like totally fixed, meaning something to do with the way the the amount of signals your brain can send per second to the muscles is kind of kind of set like on some level are you wired or not basically you just you say that guy's no that guy or girl's wired and if you do like a tap test um sometimes i do this one's called press the space bar uh 2000 and and 
I think, <laughs> granted, there's there is some fluctuation uh, based off of I I think like electrical resistance in the forearms and biceps, but you press the space bar as fast as you possibly can for five seconds, okay. and generally speaking, the distance runners and those types of people are in the 30s, like the high 30s, and generally speaking, the sprinters are in the high 40s to low 50s. The highest numbers I've ever had was a guy who won the national meet and high jump, um, and then two guys who have won gold medals in the sprints in the Olympics, <laughs> and they were all around 55. Um, so and, yeah. you were actually testing your athletes, okay, because for all intents and purposes, right, the, the speed with which you can tap the space bar, should, it seems to the outsider, completely unrelated to kind of how proficient they're going to be at sprinting or jumping. But what you're saying is that's kind of like a good neurological indicator of how quickly that individual's brain is able to communicate signals to, uh, I don't know, their, 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 you know, their extremities or. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's not perfect. I mean, I've had like, I mean, just for context, I mean, my wife can beat me at it and she, like she wasn't a power athlete at all. <laughs> like, okay. I, I mean, it, it, like I'm at like 41, 42 and she can get 44. And my brother who high jumped five, eight and I jumped seven feet can beat right. me. Uh, but there's, so it's not perfect. I'll just say it's, it's like a directional read, right? Yeah. Like it, it might like use it maybe as an indicator. Yeah. It's, there's some generalized. And what I've found too is people who are really good at like the space bar thing. And I don't know, maybe you could do like a foot tap test or something, but like, mm. I, when I do it, there's certain, I don't want to get like bogged down the nuances of this, but like I lock up my forearms and use my bicep and tricep in alternation to, as my strategy. Uh, um, so a specific strategy <laughs> and people who are faster don't have a locked wrist. They can unlock the wrist through, um, I just, I'm locked through there. Like I, I yeah. put an arp wave on it and my, like my muscles freak out. I think it's like just trying to use extreme willpower or something like that. My body thing. But, um, so there's some nuances, but more or less, um, your neural, your wiredness is pretty set. And so you just work with that as, as well as you possibly can. Hmm. Okay. And so is there, it sounds like then there's a connection between, and you were saying that, uh, you know, the ability for someone to create like an, an isometric force under, what was it, a second? Uh, one tenth of a second. Is, one tenth of yeah. a second. Right. So so people who can create a greater force technically have or, or typically have like a, a faster wired network, right? So uh, like, Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, those those people who are doing that are probably sure their space bar test might be good. But just in general, they can they can put a lot of neural juice into the muscles really fast. Hmm. Okay. So to an extent, then it sounds like that's something that you're born with, right? Is that safe to say? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't think, and that in the, those books, they, yeah, that was like in the diagram, I think that was like, okay, this is pretty fixed. And yeah, like I can't increase my space bar test. Like no matter how many times I do it, there's a few nuances with how I tap it, like distance between the finger and the keyboard, but that ain't going up. I could do it. I've done it. I've been doing it for the last 10 years and it hasn't gone up a lick. It doesn't matter. Like it only goes <laughs> down if I overtrain. If I overtrain, it goes down. Like, you're, oh, interesting. So, so, yeah. And that's like Dan John, it was the first guys to say that. Just press the space for every day and or eight seconds or something. Or you can, and, and it tells you where your nervous system is at. If you're neurally overtrained, you're going to be slower on the taps. And if you're doing well, then you'll be up on the taps. And so, yeah, it's uh, it just fits with the nervous system generally. You know, and I, I know this isn't something that we had planned to talk about today, but um, just the role that the central nervous system plays 
in any sort of like physical activity, um, you know, is something that I actually, maybe I'm embarrassed to say, but like I was unaware of, uh, and I did not something that I even considered while I was, you know, an athlete in high school or college. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I doing these decathlons now and they're only once a year. And really it's just for me to like, kind of stay motivated and have something to work towards. But in the first year that I was training for it, um, I, I, I burned myself out. And for the first time that I can ever recall doing it, I mean, like I really, I pushed myself doing, you know, too demanding of a workout, uh, you know, over too great of a time without ever deloading or taking a rest. And, you know, I started, I was getting sick. I was, I wasn't sleeping, even though I was exhausted. I had all these kind of negative side effects and I was like, what is going on? And so in doing some research, I was like, oh, well, I've probably overtaxed my central nervous system. So, you know, just, I, I think that would be a, a really great point to dive into a little bit. Could you just kind of at a high level explain the role of the central nervous system and how it kind of relates to the training that you're putting your athletes through with regards to strength and speed? Yeah, sure thing. So, um, I'm not, I, I'm not like a super details guy. I mean, I could talk like I, I could say what I know about like Let's go broad, things. Broad strokes. Yeah, like with with even like with the neurotransmitters and stuff. I think there's still a lot that we don't know, and we even have a hard time measuring some of these things. But so yeah. I, I guess I'll just say this: um, when it comes to training the nervous system, I mean, it, it can just be as simple and so, like it can be as simple as just saying we'll be specific. If you want to run fast, you need to be fast. Um, but there's some elements, I guess, of the nervous system that are very interesting. So one is if you hook, uh, they've done this in the lab, is they've hooked a slow twitch muscle up to a, a fast twitch neuron or something like that. And then the slow twitch muscles started behaving like the fast twitch muscle. Um, hmm. And so that's, I think that shows a couple interesting things. Uh, I think it goes, that actually goes to the element of um, belief systems. Um, and so, because I, I wanted to touch on the muscle ele element as well. I mean, we're either, we have a mixture of fast twitch and slow twitch and there's a spectrum. There's, yeah. there's actually more than two types. There's a lot of types, but that is also genetic. Do you have the double C or double X gene for the ACTN3? Um, which I, I do, I got a, I got a genetic test and I, I was like, I don't think I could have hydrated up seven feet if I didn't have that. Um, but the, uh, and, and just, and just to put that back in layman's terms for someone like myself, that, that meant fast twitch, correct? Yeah. 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 <laughs> double, double fast twitch. Um, so, but here's the interesting thing. And this is the thing where the, I think the body is amazing and there's outliers. And so David mm. Epstein in his book, the sport gene talked about, oh, I love that book. Yeah, it really good. And how in I think it was a guy in Europe, they steer people's preferences in track and field, their optimal race distances based off a of muscle biopsy. So mm -hmm. they'll take a chunk out of your muscle. Oh, you're about 60% fast twitch. Well, why are you running the 5K? You should run the 800, you know, like and right. they'll make those changes and people will see improvements. And so I do think there is there is a lot in that too. Some people will say, well, if you're fast twitch, you know, you probably have a wired nervous system. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I think a lot of it, and and there are coaches who really get into that, and I do consider that from time to time. Like, I, I tend to think of athletes being a little bit more as fascial versus muscle-driven. Um, mm. And and so, I let's just talk about sprinting. I've, yeah. I've, I've said before, I think athletes are, you could say a sprinter is an electric, it's electricity and it's fascia. Um, in the sense of they've done mechanical models and I may have mentioned this in speed strength, but basically if we didn't have muscles in the way and we only use like the elastic properties 
of the fascial system and our joint leverages. If we didn't have muscles, like we could run like 20 some percent faster. I think they've calculated. I don't know how they get that. I really have no idea. Um, but in terms of um, how we produce locomotion is a lot of it is uh, turning off muscles faster. So high level sprinters right. can turn off muscles faster than low level sprinters, which is again, the nervous system and also fast twitch muscles do have a faster relaxation rate. Um, back to my point though, like even someone who's not necessarily like gifted, there was a long jumper named Iago Lamea, who is a Spanish, I probably mispronounced his name. He was a Spanish jumper and he has the national record and he may have had the European record for some time. Oh, and wow. I believe that he was a guy who they found did not have had a zero fast twitch gene. He was like whatever, not the opposite of XX is. <laughs> he had right. zero. Um, and so how did this guy do it? Um, and, and so in looking at cases like that, I think that the only thing we can really say is the fascial system and then perhaps belief systems in the sense of, I think if the overriding emotions are strong enough, perhaps those neurons connected to those muscles can start behaving more like the fast twitch. Um, hmm. And then we have the, the fascial system is immense. Uh, that's another thing too, where uh, we can perhaps get into this as well, but that's to me, that's the key for the ungifted quote unquote athlete is the fascial system. Just in the sense of I hear training of a lot, a lot of about sprinter training and a lot of these athletes who are pretty fast and then they'll start doing like more of a weight lifting based regimen, getting away from some things that cater to training the fascia, which is oftentimes more high rep and more of the art type stuff. And they'll get slower. And it's almost like this thing where it's like you have to respect that fascial base that you created. Um, so, yeah. And I would, yeah. I would love to get into that a little bit. And if you wouldn't mind, even just explain at a high level, kind of the role fascia plays kind of within the, you know, the, the muscular skeletal system. Yeah, right on. Um, so I will say there is a lot about fascia that we don't know, but what we do know is that it, it connects the body in a, it, almost like a, like a saran wrap esque, uh, manner. And there's a podcast I did with Rafe Kelly, where he was talking about an interview with Katie Bowman, where even down to the level of the cell, a single cell, that single cell will put on tension lines in whatever direction it's been stressed. So it's the same thing with the fascia in our body. If we do something enough, that fascia gets strong in very specific positions. And you see this all the time, especially as a strength coach, we'll see athletes who, man, you can't, you can barely even squat your body weight or you can barely bench this. But yet when they go to their very specific sports skill, they can be explosive and strong and fast. And even to the point, I think this was in a, uh, DB hammer book, uh, the DB hammer book, but talking about a pitcher who, when I think had had a good portion of the muscle in his arm removed, could still throw just as fast as ever. Mm. And, uh, John Kiley had an illustration of an uh, athlete who had their calf removed and could still run just as fast as ever their calf muscle. And it's just this connected That's amazing. you. And it was a distance runner, granted, <laughs> right. but, but the, the power of the connective tissue of the body to, to hold, to uphold lines of force is, is absolutely tremendous. And so we, there's, uh, in the track, the narrative is given, there's the, you're a fascial or a muscular driven. And I can see it, um, in the, there's, um, a thing that I have, have certified in called neurotyping. And there's basically two types of sprinters in that there's the twitchy sprinter and the muscle, basically the muscle driven type sprinter and, or power athlete. And mm -hmm. the idea is that I think if you're muscle driven, you are fast twitch, 
but you don't use your fascia system as much because you're not quite as inclined to be to use the elastic properties of muscle. You rely on muscle, whereas the other person relies on fascia and yeah. fascial lines. And I've found that it's that fascial athlete that tends to not see those big performance improvements when they're getting the weight room where the muscle athlete kind of can. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so it kind of changes the nature and way that we see things. And I'm a fascia driven athlete as well. So it's, and I, and, the, and I think that's another thing is I think mainstream strength training, strength and conditioning just tends to look more at the muscle driven athletes and the results gotten there. But then there's the, they, they don't really look at the fascial elements in those fascial dynamics quite as much, not yet. Interesting. And part of me wonders if the reason people focus on that more muscular element is because that's something that, you know, lends itself more to traditional weight training. So they kind of feel like they have more control over hopefully improving the performance of that athlete. And I guess that that leads to the next question then. If someone thinks they're a more fascial driven athlete, you know, how, how do they improve their performance? Is it like you were saying, sheer repetition and kind of, you know, doing what that sport or that skill actually requires is going to be the best way to improve those traits or are are there things that people can do, um, you know, to try and, to try and enhance what they're already capable of? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so that's a, that is an awesome question. And so I'll, I'll speak from experience of myself and then training athletes who are also in that realm. Um, most track and field high jumpers are that fascial driven or jumpers in general are that. So it's, it's a thing where yes, the weightlifting will help those athletes, but you need to be very careful. Um, especially on the level with a fascial, well, this is any athlete, but this is a good example here is squatting. Um, and, and what's happening with, at the Achilles tendon, the level of the Achilles, yeah. and are you integrating the Achilles tendon or aren't you? And so what you can watch is um, just watch the difference between, and Adirian Barr taught me this, and it's like, wow, this makes good sense, is when when someone comes out of the blocks in track or jumps, um, watch their Achilles. When the Achilles loads with energy, the Achilles thickens, which it's it's weird. It's actually the opposite of what you'd expect from a rubber band, and I have no idea why this is, because when you pull a slingshot back, the slingshot band thins, and then you release it, and it thickens as the rock comes forward and whatnot. But the Achilles, for some reason, works opposite to that. And I don't know why. Um, I don't know why people don't talk about this. Adarian Barr just points it out. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And so (laughs) when you watch someone sprint or jump, the second that Achilles unloads its energy, the Achilles thins. And Mm. so, but a lot of times when you watch people squat, what happens is they squat down, the Achilles thickens, and they squat up and the Achilles is still thick. And so basically you're neurologically teaching the body to bypass the fascial system, if that makes sense. Um, and is, that, it, is it almost that, I mean, you said that we don't have an answer for it, so I don't know why I'm even asking, but is it almost that the Achilles operates more like a spring? You know what I mean? Like upon coiling down, taking on that force, it thickens. And then it's like when that's released, it, you know, it, it thins out. Is that the right way to think about it? Um, yeah, I think you could. I mean, I don't know the answer. I think I, 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 uh, I, yeah, like it's, it's, yeah, I guess you could say it's compressed and then it's uncompressed. I'm not sure. Okay. (laughs) Worth worth a shot. I'll remember that though. I'll think about it. Maybe the next day it'll come to me when I'm in the shower. Like, yes, that that that's right. (laughs) You solved it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying squats are bad, but I've noticed myself and with any high jumper or jumper or anyone who really operates on the elastic paradigms and elastic paradigms usually happen with a little less knee bent for the most part. Hmm. Um, things that you do that you bend your knees less. And so, uh, but not all the time. I have fascial athletes who can jump really high off two feet who do it because they can like just manipulate their joints in a particular way. They really evert and pronate their feet or twist their feet out. And they really like take up all the slack of the fascial system in these movements. But um, just a good example would be, and I've always found that full squats, doing deep squats tended to be um, good for my two leg jump, but really bad for my single leg jump. Mm. Uh, and, and eventually I adapted to the point where I could do them and not necessarily get hurt. But if I ever wanted to be my best, off of one leg, I had to stop doing them for a while. And there's a lot of things, nuances in there. I, Cal Dietz, who's a well-known strength coach and wrote a book called Triphasic Training, has talked about deep squats. The, the fascia near the knees and the quads actually make that a little less responsive. It, it takes longer to hit its stretch, a stretch response position and engage and snap. You can mm. delay it longer if you squat deep a lot. And so the body kind of morphs into these, these fascial dynamics of things that we do regularly. And so for a sprinter, and I've heard about this, I, a guy I know in Europe who's doing a great job training sprinters over there, I mean, he's, he's taken athletes who have run progressively worse through traditional means, lots of weightlifting, and him knowing that they were fascial need people had them do like a lot of high rep, just little quick burst ankle, almost almost like jump roping, if you will, but just a lot yeah. of quick rep ankle-based stuff to, to really um, take care of the feet and the fascial system there. He does lifting, but not a lot. Very low reps, and it's usually quarter squats or maybe some hex deadlifts on acceleration day. A lot of um, isometric hold type work. And mm. so just really honoring the way the fascial dynamics of the body plays out. Um, and now according to him and I believe it not, there are some sprinters out there who can just, who don't need to do that. They have the ho muscular horsepower to overcome it. Like the muscle driven person, I guess you could say like they don't, it doesn't matter. They're so powerful. It doesn't matter. But if yeah. you're not that powerful, you have to respect the fascial system by not overlifting and doing enough, like little high rep. Think of like the Shaolin, like monks hitting the thing, like the punching bag a thousand times barehanded, you know, like they're just they have, there has to be a catering to the tissue that's not just muscle and it has to have adequate reps. Hmm. So if we think about the fascia, it, it's, it's, a, it, think about it as a, as a tissue that encases the muscle, right? Yes. It's still capable of creating to your point, locomotion. Um, but it's, it's not trained in the same way that we train our muscular system. Right. Yeah. The, not quite. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you will always engage muscle and fascia in everything. I okay. should say it's not optimized through the same way muscle is optimized for like, so, uh, squatting heavy versus jumping. There's some nuances that, that one might cater a little bit more toward than the other. Got it. No. So that's, that's really helpful. And now I'm sitting here, my wheels are turning, trying to figure out where on that uh, scale do I fall myself, but Maybe I'll maybe I'll break that down in the wrap up. So let me ask you this: When you are going to help someone improve either their speed or you know their explosiveness, when we're thinking about jumping, um, you know, where do you kind of start with your assessment, and and what typically is like the first step that that you take with an athlete? Sure. So I work. This is something actually I, I'm always trying to get the 
anyone who coaches to, to get more involved in is I'm a very mm. biomechanics first person. Okay. And in the sense of, I think Dan, the great track coach, Dan Paff had said this, he's like, well, watching them sprint is the screen. <laughs> you know, I, I think that a lot of times I was just watching a video of some college weight room where they had like a really cool, and I like TRXs and I'm sure this is fine, but it was like TRX maps and you stand in front of the, it's a machine, you stand in front of it and you do, and there's lots of things like this, not just TRX, but like, you stand in front of it and you do different poses or different like articulations of your range of motion. And this yeah. machine like tells you what you need to work. <laughs> and I just think there's just such an element of commercialization there. I'm not, again, I'm not saying those things are bad and not going to be helpful to people, but at the end of the day, the best thing is a coach who can with expanded layers of awareness, watch an athlete jump sprint, whatever they're going to do and can get and use that as the starting point. Um, mm. I would get an athlete on the table to check joint range of motions after that. Like, for example, maybe I'd watch you jump and say, okay, uh, well, I'm watching you jump and you're not very good at rotating your hips. Uh, like that, maybe a two foot jump, we could say like, yeah. well, you're not very good at uh, rotation of your hips so that you're getting to the inside edge of your lead foot. You're not internally rotating the lead leg. Well, I'll check your hip rotation. Like, is do we have a blocker that's keep preventing you from getting to this position, uh, and and find out from a, maybe a, a perspective, a physiological perspective, why that's happening. So mm. I would start with the biomechanics first, and yep. then based off of that, if there is a substantial issue, then I may get into some range of motion tests or things like that. Um, a lot of it too is a lot of times, uh, or a strength thing too. Are you just can you not hit this position because of weakness? Is it something that we may have to look at in the weight room and help you get a little better understanding of so you can achieve this um, position? But again, I don't, I don't necessarily coach an athlete into the position, but I want to give them exposure in that position so they can make that technique their own, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah. So what I'm hearing here too, right, is it's incredibly personalized. Right. Like you, you didn't rush to say like, oh, well, we, we start uh, with a weight program of this for three weeks and then we jump into plyometric. It's like, no, like first we need to understand how the person's body operates. Right. Are there any blockers? Like, is there anything mechanically that we can try and get ironed out to, you know, before anything else, like improve your range of motion? Am I understanding correctly? Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the, I'll say this, like a lot, in many cases, the, the program, like if it includes weights and plyometrics and things like that, the core of it all, the general way that things are structured, mm-hmm. um, that is more similar across athletes. So it's, it is different based off things like Twitch type. And, and I, I have, again, I have like a neurotyping certification. There's basically, to me, there's basically three or four different types of athletes that I, that'll have different prog- program nuances. But for the most part, a lot of what's in the base, the lifting, the plyos, the speed of a program is a little more similar than it is different. But the nuances are all the the things that are biomechanically um, different. That's where the differences will really come in. So maybe it's something in your feet that's you, maybe you're not um, you're not pronating correctly when you mm-hmm. jump, which means your your arches are your foot aren't flattening at all. Um, so maybe we need to do something there. Maybe you have not very good sensation on the backside of your body. So maybe we need to do more drills that involve your arms on the backside of your body that give you rhythm and space and timing there. So the the core of developing speed and power, I think, is fairly straightforward. The subtleties of biomechanics are where things can get a little more complex. So let me ask you this. 
for people, well, and I'll even go back to when I was when I was in college and we had a full strength staff. Um, and not to throw anyone under the bus because a lot of those people are are still friends of mine today. But um, you know, I don't. It, it, here's what I'm trying to say. I never underwent any of this like assessment. Do you know what I mean? And there was never any uh, correction that involved like the sorts of things that you're talking about. And I think part of that was I, I was on the football team, right? So just the sheer amount of people that we had on the squad at at the start of the year, it could have been 110 people, right? So um, I understand that you might not be able to have as like personalized kind of uh, assessment and, and programming. But, you know, for either athletes today who are not getting this kind of level of, um, you know, detail or people who are no longer in college or are in high school, but still, for whatever reason, you know, want to get faster, more explosive for, you know, whatever their athletic endeavor is, you know, how and, and where can they get some of this uh, done on their own? Yeah. So, well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, well, again, I will say like the general programs, like I think that mm -hmm. like in a college setting, if everyone's, let's say it's a track team and they're, everyone's doing the same lifting program. I don't think the the nuances of that lifting program are not like quite as critical as everything else biomechanically. Obviously your event nuances are more critical than the lifting nuances for the most part. The main, yeah. the main lifting nuances, honestly, are uh, how do you respond to volume, density, and intensity? Basically, some people maybe should be in the weight room a little less. Some people can be in there more often. Some people can go harder more towards a 1RM. Some people might do better off 1 by 10. But in the same event group, like if I'm training a bunch of sprinters and they're all like running between 10-2 and 10-7, they're probably going to respond pretty similar in the weight room for the most part. The only difference would be some of them might do better with like more speed reps. And I talked mm -hmm. about this in speed strength, like, like doing like speed half squats, like doing your body weight squat as fast as you can with like, if I weigh 185, I put 185 on the bar and I do it five times as fast as I can, something like that. Whereas another person might do better if they load up close to their one RM and just do like a few like doubles or something like that. Yeah. Um, the Charlie Francis esque like Ben Johnson type program. But, right, right, right. Um, but outside of that, I think it does. It just gets similar to track and field. Like, what are your, uh, you know, not trying to put people in the same box, but more just looking at what part of your system is not doesn't have a lot of awareness and sensation to it. Um, a mm. lot of people, it's space on the backside of the body, um, and so yeah, it's just trying to find what fits with what you're trying to work on. And looking at um, exploration-based exercises to help give you more more reps there, more exposure there. And then if there's any weak links, giving you some strength work. You know, some strength work is fine, but strength work that can uphold those weak links also. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's something that I've begun to understand more and more as I, as I try and make myself aware of what people are doing uh, at the highest levels of you know strength and conditioning and sprint training is it's really about a personal assessment of weaknesses and, and areas of improvement, right? Yeah. It, it, there's not a catch-all approach. It's like, hey, for this individual person, like where is there an area where if we could improve this, you know, by X amount is going to contribute to an overall better performance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was the epitome, like the special strength system of the Russians. It was kind of mm. like, if you weren't, if you didn't have the optimal technique, there was some, there'd be special strength exercises or bridge or gap exercises that were put in to try to give you more exposure to the elements of that part of the technique. Yeah. Um, so like for, 
Um, I mean, for high jump, for example, if I have an athlete who, like if I'm coaching club track and I have an athlete who doesn't, just doesn't have good coordination with their arms, everything else is fine, but they don't have good coordination with their arms when they're jumping. Well, just sitting there telling them to use their arms more for the 10 to 15 jumps we do on the day isn't going to give them enough stimulation to use their arms well. And I can't just tell them to do it because it's too much forebrain. So what I have to do is I have to tell them uh, we have to use some practice time to make them do like 150 meter skips (laughs) where they're doing a double arm action or a single arm action replicating so they get hundreds of reps in. So it'd be stuff like that where where I pick something that you need to work on, but you need to do hundreds of reps of it to to get to the point where it's going to be able to be infused into your technique. Yeah. So you need those hundreds of reps to kind of like forge that muscle memory because it's not something that can just be like consciously ingrained. Yeah. Yeah. It has to, it has just just to give the subconscious room to work with. (laughs) It's how we all became athletic from our young childhood years. You know, we, we did thousands of reps of various things. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so let me ask you, one last question, and I'm going to let you choose where we go with it because I, I know we're buttoned up against time here. So the one thing I was going to ask was, you know, if someone wants to work on getting, let's let's say, faster or more explosive, and I'm thinking in terms of jumping, right? What is the best way to structure their workouts? And then two, if we have time for it, you've brought up neurotyping a couple times. And I think I actually heard your podcast with Christian Thibodeau. Yeah, Thibodeau. Um, uh, if, if we have time to expand on that, I would love to hear a little bit about your thoughts um, and, and what that is, because it's something that I was completely unaware of that I think is really interesting. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I'll I'll try to get both of those here. Uh, so in terms of well, just generalities and structuring workouts. If I want to sprint faster, jump higher, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. The big things is. And I, I talk about this a little bit in vertical ignition, but this would be just be the Bondarchuk pyramid of like Anatoly Bondarchuk was a famous Russian throws coach, and he okay. had his people just dominated. They swept the medals multiple Olympics, and he had a pyramid where basically um, you know the importance of what you're doing. So if I want to sprint faster, then I need a certain volume of sprinting to be my best, and then that's that's the most critical piece uh and then the next layer down would be a uh, special strength or uh, it's called a sde or special developmental but that might be bounding or something that's close to sprinting but it's not sprinting okay. um the next thing is the spe so that would be weightlifting, like doing uh uh, doing maybe some deadlifts or some cleans or something like that where it's we're getting more different and then the bottom of the pyramid is general so that's just doing like i don't know sit-ups or just body weight movements, make crouch walks or crawls or pull-ups and stuff that's kind of just remedial. Okay. So you need to do, you need to pay the highest priority, the thing you need to get better at. And so it's setting up a system where you're, you're doing that as, as reasonably often as you can on some level, um, without burning yourself out. And so that's that's a big one but then if you flip flop it you also you're going to eventually get to a peak doing that like if i go out and i sprint i want to do a 40 yard dash better well if yeah. i go and do the 40 um three times a week for four weeks i'll probably start to get better at it for the, maybe the first two or three or four but eventually i'm going to run into a roadblock and the only way Let's to get around that is to basically you have to train something else <laughs> you mm-hmm. would have to do maybe resisted this is the simplest simple way you could say it you have to do resisted sprinting for the next uh three four weeks until you adapt to that 
But then mm-hmm. you go back and you do the regular sprinting and you might see a substantial improvement. Um, so I'm just trying to simplify like what training is, like the core component of essence of training is being specific until you adapt and then doing something that's very similar until you adapt. And then, yeah. and then putting that uh, prior uh, rather than what some people might say is, oh, well, I sprinted, you know, I, I'm not getting any faster. So I need to spend a lot of time in the weight room <laughs> and you go and you, you get stronger for three months and then you go back right. and start sprinting. It's like, well, what the heck? Like now if you're low level, like if you're not having, if you haven't trained much period, yeah, maybe you did get a lot faster, mm-hmm. but the problem even with that, that low level experience, let's say I'm, you know, 16 and I haven't sprinted that much and I just got stronger and well, now I'm faster. Well, that's great. But you kind of took, on some level, you kind of took a shortcut in the sense of sometimes the patterns that come from doing something else too much, mostly weightlifting, and I see this show up in a lot of college athletes. Yeah. But too much weightlifting, there's certain patterns that come in that weightlifting that will sealing you out from your highest potential at some point. I'm not saying don't mm. lift, I'm just saying do it in the amounts that, um, like Dan John, I like his, uh, his proportion is, you know, 10%, 10, 10% of your training is lifting. 80% is specific, 10% is recovery. So hmm. finding different ways to be specific within uh, the scope of what you're doing. Um, in in jumping, you could say, well, you could do um, a lot of, you could do, and jumping is tough because if you jump too much the same way, your body just gets mad at you because of joint pressures and shuts the nervous system down. So, hmm. uh, you know, I, I, the, it changes for things like that. But doing different types of jumping, uh, different types of plyometrics and rotating those types of things periodically. And then you have the backbone of lifting that slowly goes up over time. But I don't really necessarily like um, to do too much lifting really quick and get a quick gain is a shortcut. So you need to keep everything in balance over time and rotate things over time uh, once you peak out. And that was the essence yeah. of the bonder check system. And everything in existence is kind of a, a variation of that principle in some way, shape, or form. So to answer a question that could be really long and, and as quick a way as I could, I think that's a somewhat simple way of putting it. Yeah, no, and I think you said something there that um, it, it was a really good realization for me. And I imagine, you know, to you, it, it, it's, it seems so, um, you know, just like obvious that you probably don't even like think to mention it very often, but like, yeah, a lot of us have been trained to believe that like, hey, if you go into the weight room and you get stronger, you will jump higher and run faster. When in actuality, like if you're not a person who's just going to improve from increasing their general strength, like there becomes a point where all you're doing is just getting stronger at the lifts you're practicing in the gym. Like I was trying to improve my vertical getting ready for this decathlon that I was doing and I was doing all these lifting exercises and I gained 10 pounds. And then when I went to go test my vertical, it was, exa- you know, exactly the same, but boy, I sure got a lot stronger at squatting. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, so I just think being aware of that alone is, is really beneficial for people, right? Like don't lose sight of the actual like skill that you're trying to improve. Um, and make sure you're dedicating time to actually executing that skill not just training all these like base building things that that really should just, you know, be in support of that skill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just always trying to find and that's where I think we just have to have higher levels of awareness to to again when you tap out a skill, if I tap out my sprinting speed, just finding different ways to hit sprinting. Mm. Uh, like I said, resisted, assisted, whatever, different versions of hills or different constraints. And then 
that's a higher transfer yield because that's ultimately the skill. And then the weights is always, is always the backbone, but we never like say, hey, we're just going to lift weights primarily for X amount of time, really. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I know that I could probably talk to you or, or, or have you talk for hours on end uh, about that topic alone, but I would love to at least give some high-level exposure to uh, neurotyping. Do you, do you, would you mind just giving us a high-level overview of kind of what that is? Do we have yeah, time? Yeah, so neurotyping is basically deciding to or the way that training individualization based off of brain chemistry, um, so mm-hmm. how much do, levels of dopamine or a dominance um, actually, I shouldn't say a dominance. It's it's a your brain craves it. So does your brain crave dopamine? Does your brain crave acetylcholine? Or does your brain crave um, adre- like adrenaline responses? Does your brain uh, crave um, serotonin? And so, but the thing, this actually, this whole system, it's interesting because it, there's a lot of scrutiny when you actually look at the scientific stuff. In practicality, I think it's it is right on. I think it's fantastic. And so. Just a quick overview is like a someone who craves dopamine tends to be that more wired athlete, hmm. um, and so those are people who generally are not always, but generally like louder. They're more like thrill seeking type people. Um, there's just something there, and and they tend to be the sprinters and the more power driven athletes. Uh, they tend to like if you're shaking their hand, they might try to like shake yours more firmly and really look you in the eye and they're trying to like physically dominate you those type of people um, so my but, my father-in-law <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so yeah so he needs to lift low reps or well it depends okay. if you're one a or one b like and then low reps for got it okay yeah cool. but if, then again if you're the this the, the nuances though if you're um, more of an acetylcholine type then you are the person who fits more with needing more stretch shortening based activities as a primary. So if I'm in the weight room and this is for me personally, I do better off this stuff is I will do better with like more of a speed squatting that has a speed or a rhythm nuance to it. Hmm. Um, or just going straight general and doing like one or two higher rep sets of squatting. So I'm not even really touching the nervous system, but that's a little bit um, further off. I, I want to get back to the neurotyping and then you have the the adrenaline responsive types, which more or less, those are the types that like the more layered system stuff. So doing the explosive thing, doing a strength thing in the weight room, then doing like a burnout, um, high conditioning type thing. And what I found in like the world of say aquatics is one of these guys may just need to do like if he's, whether it's in the pool, doing like a little bit more high volume stuff in the pool or in the weight room, he might need to do a couple extra pump up sets at the end of the day he needs to find a way to stimulate a little more muscle. He needs to feel a pump to get, you could say it's increased sensitivity of the muscle spit, like muscle system or the nervous system with the muscle. I'm not sure, but for some reason, these athletes just need to do a little more muscle pump work here and there to actually hit their highest strength and power potential. Mm. Um, so it kind of, it's a kind of a little bit of an opposition to the nervous system. Obviously they still need to train specifically, but in that 10% time that they are in the weight room, they need to look at finding some things that pump them up just a little bit sometimes. Um, and then you you have all these variations of that. And then there's also a type three, which is a athlete who just needs structure. They need everything that's laid out for them and very structured. And you have three sets of five and it will be a 303 tempo. And here is why you are doing it. And But the problem yeah. is those athletes tend to be technically poor because they and this wasn't even in the course, but I find this to be true, is they tend to crave position and they rigid technique, and then they don't flow as well. And so 
um, that's that's something that I found outside of that. But so, anyways, it's just what's personality like? Are you, generally you're more aggressive? You know, you're probably going to be maybe more of a sprintery type power. And are you more like approval seeking? Um, you might be a more muscle driven type person. And then the, then there's also the uh, how structured do you need to be? And uh, Christian looks at those people more as like the slow twitch. Um, hmm. but I've found that can be a little bit all over the board. So, um, yeah, it's been fun exploring it. It'd be a whole show really to show where I went with it, but I found it incredibly useful. Yeah, no, that's, it, it sounds really interesting. And I think, uh, just understanding that it, it goes beyond reps and sets and moving weight around, right? There's this whole other like neurological element that I think needs to be taken into consideration. And, uh, it's, it's cool to hear how you're trying to incorporate it. Um, like you said, if at some point in the future, I would love to get you back and, and hear more just on that topic. Um, but in the time being, you know, for those that want to uh, either get in touch with you or, or you know, hear about what you're working on, what's the best way for people to find you? Sure. Uh, so just just flysports.com. So it's J-U-S-T dash fly or dash fly dash sports.com. Uh, I'm sure if you Google it, it'll show up correctly. Yeah, and I'll make, I'll make sure to link that well. for our SEO. Uh, so just fly sports. We're on Twitter. <laughs> we're on Instagram. Pod, just fly performance podcast, things like that. Awesome. Well, and I, I highly recommend it for those listening. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a ton of great content out there. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you for having me, Ken. All right. Talk to you soon. You better go ask mommy, daddy. <laughs> Cause you're my lady. <laughs> hey, Sonia. Oh my God. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to another section where we run it by my wife. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing today? We're doing pretty good. Yeah. We've had a good day. You've had a very busy day. Yeah. Should we, should we talk really quickly about what uh, you and our daughter did today? Uh, sure. Yeah. We, we <laughs> filmed Harper's audition for her own food network show. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to go really well. <laughs> She's a natural. So uh, we'll have to post her her recipe for making lemonade. Yeah, well, it's, we're, we're kidding. She's not really auditioning, but she she wanted to make a lemonade making video. Well, she made it. Yeah. And she has a secret ingredient out there, folks. So stay tuned. <laughs> uh, so what did you think of the show? Um, this is really good. He's very knowledgeable. Yeah. I know. I thought it was really good too. And it's, I'm interested to hear the feedback because a lot of the ones that we've done so far have been a little bit more broad, Yeah, you know, a like bit above my pay grade. Yeah. Like really kind of like applicable to like any facet of life, like Greg, the, um, sports, you know, uh, psychiatrist, right? Like that stuff helps all across the board yeah. sleep. Everyone needs to sleep. This one is like very specific to sport. But I found it really interesting because I think one, he, he, you know, he just he has such great information, but yeah, it's also things that if you're into athletics or what I think is really important to is if you have kids, this is really important stuff to be aware of, um, especially if you're trying to help someone reach their ceiling and you kind of want to understand like what's going to be the best use of my time and like where, how do I go about getting faster, jumping higher? A lot of this was really applicable in that regard. Mm-hmm. So actually what I want to do, because it's the lifeblood of the show, is start with some reviews that we've received. Yeah. Yeah. These just got passed to me by, uh, by our uh, c uh, co-producer. He sent these to me, asked that we read them. So 
here we go. Here's the first one. Always knew you had a face for radio. <laughs> um, don't forget to call your brother. That, okay, that must be a mistake. Uh, okay, review number two. Uh, your wife is my favorite part of the show. That's nice. Uh, my only favorite part of the show. <clears throat> um, okay, we need to screen these. Number three, your wife sounds hot. All right. Hey, did you ever call mom back? <clears throat> okay. Um, so anyways, if you haven't, folks, you're enjoying the show, leave a rating, leave a review. Uh, they help us get get found, and uh, it's going to help us get big guests like yeah. the ones that we've already had. So mm -hmm. please take the time. Uh, so with that, I think that's a nice little segue into our takeaways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the first one. Actually, do you want to start? Did you have anything that's kind of no, sitting there burning in your pocket? You, right. go, you go ahead and start. I like this idea of you need to tap into your own natural movement pattern versus cramming yourself into a stereotypical box. Yeah. Now that's, that's certainly, I'm going to give you my take and then I want to throw it over to you. I think that's certainly important for sport, right? Like if we're talking about like biomechanics, everyone thinks that there's like a, a right way to do things, but that right way to do things really depends on like the kind of the structure of your own body. I think more broadly, right? If I try and take something away from that, it's like, look, you know, not to be cliche, but like be yourself. Like you have your own unique strengths, your own unique things that you're bringing to the table. Like don't try and fit yourself into this box. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like kind of like you're unique for a reason. Like people will actually appreciate that. So it's like lean in on your uniqueness. Right. Too broad? No, it's good. Right? Yeah. I, I don't know. As long as you have proper form, then you can... <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah. So it's like we, um, I just recorded an episode with Gavin McMillan. He was talking about how people have tried to even say that Usain Bolt could run faster if he would like change his form. And he has like the, the counter argument of like, no, his form works for him because it like, it's based upon like the way his body wants to function. Like he has different levers. He's taller, different muscle fibers. You know what I mean? It's like what he's doing works for him even though it might not be like the prototypical approach. Right. Kind of like dancing. Okay. <laughs> right. Please Everyone has their own style. Please continue. It's all dancing, but <laughs> yeah, it is all dancing. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I think people's next question naturally is who's the better dancer between you and I? Uh, I think Ooh. I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Technically wow. I think I am but I think you have more pizzazz. <laughs> yeah, I do try and bring the heat and I feel like you probably are a little more technical um, <laughs> and you bring a lot of elbows to the dance floor, <laughs> which is very underutilized. Yeah, that's true. By most wedding dancers. Um, so yeah, you got to be careful dancing with you. It's high stakes, <laughs> but it's enjoyable. Okay. So what do you think of that takeaway? That was good. That yeah, was good. <laughs> But it's cool. And I think the other thing there too is like, if you want help in that regard, like really try and find a coach that you think uh, is doing things that make sense. Yeah. Right. It helps to have a coach. Like that's one thing, the older I get in life. Yeah. I'm like, stop trying to figure everything out on my own. Just like get a coach. <laughs> that's true. You are, you're good about seeking help when you think you need it. Yeah. I just want to like offload some of these things off my calendar. You know what I mean? Like, 
I could sit there and read biomechanics books all day and try and figure out how to fix my own form. Or I could take a little bit of time, a little bit of money, go to someone who already has expertise in that and like have them help me. Yeah. And you're going to get a lot further, a lot faster. That's right. true. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, we talked a lot about the central nervous system today in this mm-hmm. idea of being wired. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. That's really cool. Had you heard about that before? No, never. Did it makes. You? Yeah, I had. <laughs> okay. No, but like it's in recent years, like mm-hmm. I think I even said in the podcast, like when I was playing, even in college, the central nervous system did not even like cross my mind at all. Yeah. I'm sure the people who were training us were thinking about it, but I was it never even like was considering it. Mm. Um, and so really what it is, it's just like how quickly can your brain communicate signals to your muscles, nerves, et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying is that, you know, the rate at which they can communicate those signals is kind of set. And when it comes to athletic performance, it's like, look, sprinters are able to do it quicker than people who are maybe like a long distance runner. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, that is cool. Where do you think you are on that scale? Are you quick twitch? Are you slow twitch? I mean, neither bad. I'm a middle twitch. Oh, interesting. Now <laughs> he brought up the space bar test. What do you think I am? I, mm, that's a good question. I would have thought you were on the quick twitch side of things. What does my space bar test say? Well, let's get into that. So we did the space bar test and I'm going to link to it because it was awesome. How did you feel about the, the space bar test and your performance before I released I wish results? I knew which finger you were supposed to use to get best results. Cause I feel like trying all, I use my thumb pointer in middle. Yeah. What was fastest? My thumb. Oh, that's right. Which I thought was weird. Yeah. For me, it was middle finger. Yeah. I just got right in I only there. tried middle finger once though. Yeah. So maybe. Yeah. And there's a little exhaustion. Do you want to? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> but um, do you should explain what it is. Though. Yes. The space bar test for those who want to try it at home. I'm going to link to it. Basically, you can do a bunch of different time limits, but... You try and see how many times you can click the space bar within a set amount of time. And we did five seconds because I think that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Five seconds. So he had Olympic gold medalists, the fastest he's ever seen them do it at 55 uh, overall clicks, Mm -hmm. which is like 10.1 clicks per second or something. Yeah. Pretty fast. And then someone who's like a distance runner would be like in the 30s. So like 30 clicks over five seconds. Mm -hmm. You... Do you remember what you got? I wrote it down. 40. It. 40. Yeah. Pretty good. Is it? <laughs> yeah. I think so. Okay. Well, we're going to try it again too. But So you got 40. I got, uh, what did I say? 45. 45. Yeah. Okay. So I think I'm actually on the scale right around where I thought I'd be. Hey, buddy. Oh, our kids came in. Here we go. All right. We better wrap this up. Yeah. Hold on, buddy. One second. One second. Come here. You want to hang out for a minute? Yeah. Okay. You gotta this be is, quiet though, Kenny. Yeah, okay. Gotta be quiet. This is Kenny, everybody. Um, so yeah, forty-five. So we were, I think, about where we thought we would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's cool. And so yeah, it's kind of set, um, which I thought was interesting. But he also thinks that this idea of like fast twitch muscle fibers, it isn't like necessarily a hard and fast rule. Yeah. So that was cool. So if you're someone who you think you might be slow twitch, you want to get better at jumping. Hold on, buddy. There's still hope for you. Yeah. What about neurotyping? Yeah, that's crazy, right? Yeah. You want to what, buddy? I want to know what. You want the headphones? He wants to hear where your headphones. Okay, you got to listen. No talking. I 
and Monday. Amen. Amen. Oh, he's saying his prayers. That was very sweet, buddy. Okay, you got to be quiet, okay? Okay, so we're going to wrap this up. Neurotyping, I want to have that guy on the show, that Christian Thibodeau, to explain it. Yeah. I think it's this idea, though, of like... I am my day, <laughs> and mommy day, a day. Okay, yeah. good boy. You got it, buddy. My day. You got it. And you're the thing and present. <laughs> okay. Good job, buddy. And then you're the word present. Yeah. And you're the car and my room. Oh, Okay. Good job. Okay. Okay, buddy. All right, we got to finish this up, okay? Okay. Can you be quiet? You got to be so quiet. Okay. Okay, be quiet. Um, so I want to – the neurotyping I think is interesting. And I – we didn't – I think we really breezed through it. Hold on, buddy. I think the idea is that, like, you have a type uh, – I don't know. Is it, I don't know if it's more personality if or it's more, like, neurological – I don't even wasn't want to it, speak to wasn't it. Wasn't it more like so neurological and that like affected so. your personality and maybe that's the type of athlete you are? Yeah. Okay. I think it's really interesting. We need to have that guy on the yeah, show. I don't, really I'm going to butcher it and people are just going to stop tuning back in. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's really cool. Uh, and then the last thing, we've heard a couple guests say this, uh, pay the highest priority to the thing you want to get better at. Mm-hmm. If you want to get better at sprinting, you need to be sprinting. Right. If you want to get better at jumping, you need to be jumping. Mm-hmm. Thoughts. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. Straightforward. Yeah. Straightforward. And then what was cool is it's like, look, there is a point though where you'll plateau. And he says, at that point is when you might want to add resistance. And then by adding resistance to that exercise, right, you'll break through that plateau. Yeah. Um, this has gone off the rails. With yeah. this. So we're going to wrap this up. But anyways, I thought, upset, I, I thought it was an awesome conversation. Do you have... Any parting thoughts? Um, no. <laughs> I thought it was really good. I mean, like I said, it was above my pay grade. I feel like it's, it was a little technical for me, but it was definitely interesting. Would you have listened to it had you not been my wife? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. All right. Well, we're going to sign off. Kenny, do you want to say goodbye to everybody? Yeah. Okay. Say, say bye, goodbye. Everybody. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, Cannon's about to lose it. All right, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye.